Welcome, and thank you for downloading Movement Christian Church's sermon podcast. Here at Movement, we are passionate about God's Word and helping each other move closer to God. Thank you for choosing to grow with us today. And now, here's our lead minister, Bobby Wallace. All right, Lost in Translation. We're still in this series. I'm uh, excited about it. It's been a good series so far. Today, before we really get into it, I want to talk to you about scapegoats. You ever use that phrase before? Or somebody come to your mind or, or something come to your mind? I want to share a few with you that probably, they come to my mind anyway. Uh, whether you're a sports fan or not, you might be familiar with um, the curse that the Red Sox were under for about 86 years. You might know about that, Boston Red Sox. Um, Bill Butner. If you know anything about sports, and I say that name, you know that he was a huge scapegoat in 1986 for uh, the Boston Red Sox. They were in the World Series against the New York Mets, and Bill Buckner's there. He's the first baseman. He's playing the line. The ball's hit by Mookie Wilson, and the ball goes, and it's just kind of a dribbler. Mookie Wilson's fast, so it's a little bit of pressure, you know, but he's like, all he's got to do is pick the ball up, run, step on first base. You know, that's it, right? I mean, that's the beginning of the end. They're going to be the champions. So ball just goes right through his legs. I mean, like T-ball, it's like, you know, Little League baseball. Uh, my 15-year-old, he played uh, baseball yesterday. And, I mean, they pl- made some crazy T-ball plays, even though they're 15, and lost the game. You know, and it's like he's a professional guy. Bill Butner's professional. He's supposed to be able to make that play. Ball goes through his legs. Mookie Wilson gets on. Mets win the World Series. And for another, gosh, I, don't even, I can't even do the math. How many years? Like 17 years or so before they won uh, the World Series finally after 86 years and broke the curse. Well, there's another uh, story franchise of Loserville uh, called the Chicago Cubs. And they had a longer curse of a hundred and some years. I think it was just over a hundred years. And they had a lot of things that they blamed. I think there was a goat blamed, or maybe that was the Red Sox. I can't remember. But in modern times, they're in the uh, playoffs. They look like they're going to make the run. They've had this amazing team all year. And a ball is hit. Uh, center fielder, I believe it's Moises Alou, goes for the, to catch the ball. It's just there above the fence. It's an easy play for a major leaguer. He's got the out. And a lifelong Chicago Cubs fan, if you know anything about the story, by the name of nobody. Anybody remembers? Steve Bartman. Anybody remember his name? He's got the Chicago, he's got the satin jacket on. He's got the hat, the, the old school uh, headphones on, and he's listening to the game. He's just that much of a fan. He's listening to the radio broadcast, and he's doing it, and he realizes the ball's coming to him. He's got his glove, or maybe I don't remember if he had a glove. He reaches up and hits the ball and, and catches it, gets, gets the, keeps the guy from getting the out. And so then they lose, and then along, it's a while later, they finally get to win again. So he was a scapegoat. He was blamed, he was hated, he went into hiding, it was crazy. And there's a few more, maybe, even if you're not a sports fan, maybe these will <clears throat> Excuse me, get a little, get a little emotional. Um, I'm going to say this name. There's a scapegoat for a guy by the name of LeBron James. Uh, his name is Russell Westbrook, and... LeBron blaming his failure yet again on a guy like Russell Westbrook. So, I thought I'd get a rile out of some LeBron fans. Thank on it. Nobody said anything. All right. So, you know, LeBron blames his, you know, sitting at home on that. Um, and then there's this other guy just down the road. And so, okay, if you haven't known this, if you're not a sports person, you've been, like, frustrated me talking about this stuff, but you know this name, hopefully. Just down the road, there's a guy by the name of Coach K who is scapegoating the Carolina Tar Heels for sending them out a loser twice over, once in the regular season and then in the NCAA tournament. 
Man, I'm getting no rise out of anybody. Nobody booing, nobody hissing, nobody clapping. I heard like one person clap. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. That is a Carolina fan thing. Um, and then one more. I want, to, I want to make somebody angry, so I'm going to keep trying. Um, and I know I've got a buddy here who might make angry. Um, there is an institution like a few miles down the road, NC State University, and their scapegoat for losing everything except bass fishing is the NCAA. They blame, they blame, NC State blames the NCAA on them losing baseball, on basketball. It's just the NCAA's fault. It's true. It's, yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing. The idea for a scapegoat, and if you're not into sports, those don't mean anything to you, but you can probably think of somebody or something that's been scapegoated. Somebody that's taken a lot of blame that they probably didn't deserve for something that happened. And so I want to talk to you to get us into our word. Our word's not scapegoat, because that's kind of an obscure word to choose to talk about what's lost in translation. But that idea for scapegoat, it actually originates in Scripture. Did you know that? It originates in Scripture. Every now and then I like to throw you a little something that will help you win Jeopardy maybe. And if you ever win Jeopardy, I need a cut. You know, where does scapegoat come from? It comes from the Bible. All right, there you go. You never know. They throw a Bible category in there sometimes. But it, it comes from Leviticus chapter 16. And there were a couple of goats. And we're not going to spend a lot of time there. But you can turn there if you'd like. Leviticus 16. And you can go back and read it more in detail if you want. But they would have two goats. They would cast lots. One would be sacrificed. And the other goat would become the scapegoat. And the priest would confess the sins of the people over the head of that scapegoat. And then that scapegoat would be led out into the wilderness outside the camp. And in God's really cool, crazy way of foreshadowing Jesus over and over and over and over again, like, hey, he's coming, he's coming. He does it over and over. Jesus is the one who sacrificed, but he's also at the same time, the scapegoat who is taken outside of the, the city and sacrificed, you know, and let go outside for the sins of the people. He became our scapegoat and he became the scapegoat of all the people who ever lived. So what we're talking about, though, this week, why we're talking about scapegoats is because we're talking about a word that is probably... Most of us are familiar with this word, even if it's not in a biblical context, because I don't know exactly, you know, you may not have grown up in church, you may not know a lot of church words, but this is a word that almost everybody should at least know or have heard before. It's the word righteous, righteous, um, depending on if you're like an 80s kid or you like old, everything 80s is coming back, you might have seen Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Pretty sure they use the word righteous a little bit, not for the same reasons that we're going to use it. But there's the word righteous that we want to look at. And it carries the idea of not guilty or innocent or perfect or faultless. It carries a lot of different meanings, but it's really hitting the nail on the head every time. To be righteous in the eyes of God basically means to be perfect without fault. And that's a word that, yeah, we may know it, but do we really understand what it means? Now, there's some companion words that go along with it in Scripture. Uh, justified, justification, different forms of that. All those with righteous, they're different forms of the same Greek word. And it's just got some different endings and some different things like that. And it's pretty interesting. So you'll see the word if you're reading Scripture, depending on your translation. You might see righteous, you might see justified, you might see justification. 
all those words are roughly the same word family in the Greek as the New Testament was written in. And so, like for justified, for example, uh, it, it's the Greek word that's dikaiosis. And then righteous would be, uh, deco- oh, excuse me, I'm not a Greek scholar, uh, Dikaios, dikaios, there you go, uh, in other forms. And so you see these words, they're all translated. Sometimes it's justified, sometimes it's righteous, sometimes it's justification. But there's a big issue. When we're talking about that word, and especially in relationship with us and God, that word has a lot of meaning. We cannot just dismiss it. It's not just a certain decades word for cool. Like, you know, in the 80s, righteous man, or that might be 70s, I don't know. But it's not just that. It's you're standing with God. And to spend eternity with God forever, you have to be, and I'm just going to use another, another descriptive word here to make sure we catch it, you have to be perfectly righteous. That's sort of redundant to say that, and I want you to make sure you put that together, but to be righteous before God, you have to get it right every time. And most of you are already going here in your mind. You know what the problem is. Is anybody righteous? Is anybody perfect? Does anybody get it right all of the time? No, we don't get it right all of the time. And and the scripture tells us in a very famous, often quoted passage of scripture, Romans 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many? All. All All of us. And then to use an Old Testament passage, Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So Isaiah, in his very poetic, descriptive language, says that we all have become unclean. And he uses a phrase, and, and you know, if you've been here a while, you know, a couple of years, I don't think I've touched on this in a passage in a couple of years, but you may have heard it from somewhere else. But this word that's chosen in the Hebrew, where it says that all of our, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags or, or like uh, polluted garments, it's a word that was often used for menstrual cloths. And so the idea was, this is not clean. And so I want to point out though something really important. It doesn't say that your bad deeds are like that. What does it say? Your righteous deeds, your good deeds are like filthy rags, are like polluted garments. So let me, let's, let's pause for a second. Let's, let's stop. We all can, most of us can agree that there's right and wrong. And that we do wrong things and our wrong decisions, uh, sins, you know, or even just dumb things that we do, not necessarily even sins, but all of our bad things that we do, sins, mistakes, whatever they are, they can hurt other people. And yes, they're wrong. And we understand how those bad decisions, those sins, those different things like that can hurt us and hurt our relationship with other people. And, And it's not hard to extrapolate that it hurts our relationship with God. But most of us, most of us in our world, in our society, even if we've grown up in church, we still hold on a little bit to the hope that God is taking notes on all of the really nice things we do. You know, when you give somebody the, in traffic, the halo appears, the the clouds part, 
Or, you know, if you really, huh, are any of you guys super righteous? Do you ever pay for the person in the Starbucks line behind you in the drive-thru? Or McDonald's or Chick-fil-A? See, you're a sinner. You're a vile sinner, Tyler. He said, no, I don't do that. No, you know, so you do things like that. You're like extra righteous, right? And so you're hoping that maybe, just maybe, God or he's got one of his angels or something sitting there taking notes. And he's like, oh, yeah, I see that. Bobby did a little nice, nicey-nicey thing. Here you go. All right, he's, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. We're going to take it easy on him. It's ingrained in us oftentimes to want to compare and stack up our righteous deeds versus our, our sinful things. And we hope, like the, the Muslim faith teaches, is that maybe our good deeds will outweigh our bad deeds at the end of time and of judgment, and that God will then have mercy on us. But we don't operate on a system like that. Because what God said through Isaiah is, all of your righteous deeds, all of your perfect deeds are like filthy rags, are like polluted garments before God. Ruh-roh. There's a big problem. There is a big problem if your good deeds are disgusting in the sight of God. If they are broken and they are flawed in the sight of God. And that's the thing with this relationship with us and God. It has to be what? Perfection if we want to spend eternity with Him. And so no matter, you can't erase those bad things. No matter how many good things you stack up on top of it. That, my friends, is a terrifying problem if you understand, if you catch even the slightest glimpse of who God is and all of his power and all of his might. And we talked about last week in the word holy about how the temple shook when Isaiah got to peek into the temple and everything, you know, the foundations that he said, whoa, is me. I'm a dead man. You know, I'm a man of unclean lips. He wanted to die. He thought he was going to die. All right. I'm hammered that in enough. The truth is, we are far from righteous, aren't we? We are far from even being really good. We're, we're so jacked up, even our righteous deeds are a mess. And here's what Jesus said, just in case you snoozed through the first little bit, I want you to hear this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. It says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this might be a little bit confusing to you, but the Pharisees did a lot of stuff right. And when we hear Pharisee, a lot of things, times we just think all negative. They got carried away and they started putting burdens on people that even God did not. But when it came to the law, they did almost everything perfect. And if they didn't do it perfect, they did the right sacrifice, all that sort of stuff. That's what Paul said. You know, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. When it came to the law, faultless, he said. You know, so he offered the right sacrifice, even if he was broken. So you hear what I'm saying, though? He says, you have to be better than the Pharisees in keeping the law if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. Every first century Jew that was listening to Jesus preach this message. And let me say it again. It was who preaching it? Jesus. When they heard that, they said, old stuff. They're like, it's not good. I don't have a chance. If I've got to be better than the Pharisees, I don't have a chance at being a part of the kingdom of heaven. But guess what? I say this a lot. I've said it frequently. Once again, when Jesus is in the picture, there's good news. There's hope. 
I don't know about y'all, but I need some good news. I need some hope. And when you feel unrighteous, and rightfully so, when you feel broken, when you feel like a mess, when you feel like your polluted garments, when you feel like you just can't get it right, there's still hope when Jesus is on the scene because Jesus is our scapegoat. Jesus is the one who will take the punishment that was meant for us. He will take the burden of the sins that were meant for us. He takes the blame. Can I illustrate it like this for you? I'll be right back. Please don't Still there? Give me a second, please. I promise I'm coming back. Have y'all ever seen the naked gun? You probably thought that's what was going on. I won't go into detail. All rise. You don't have to. You don't have to. I know you don't respect me. <laughs> I'm not even going to play that game. I am here today because I am representing a judge. You like this? I've got my nice gavel. Top of the line, little tykes gavel. And I want to share with you an idea because I want to make sure that we understand the idea of what it takes for us to be righteous. Let's say that you are going through this town. It's out in the country. Um, you get a little carried away. I, I haven't had a lot of speeding tickets in my life, but the two that I had, I was borrowing my parents' vehicle. Um, I, my parents were kind enough when I was in college to help me get a little uh, beat-up uh, Chevy Beretta. Does anybody even remember those? Uh, it was a good car, but then all of a sudden it started having some issues, and so they let me borrow their car. Well, mine was a little, I'm pretty sure it might have been a V6, but that was like a, a, you wish it was a V6 kind of thing. But they had a Chevrolet Monte Carlo, which was a V8. It was like, it was basically what NASCAR was using, you know, of course, souped up. But it was like, it was a, a race car in and of itself, you know, it had a little bit of pep, especially compared to mine. So they let me borrow their car. They had another vehicle they could share while I needed something to get back and forth. So I'm driving and I get caught speeding because I set the cruise for the speed limit. And then I'm listening at that time. I was loving Jesus. I was in Bible college. I was listening to worship music, blaring it loud, and my foot just rested on the gas pedal. This happened to me twice in about three weeks' time. I had never had a speeding ticket, and I got two speeding tickets in three weeks because I set the cruise, and then my foot rested on the gas, this big old V8, and I got pulled over. All right? So imagine that you're doing that. You're not trying to like run from the cops, but you're speeding, and you get a little carried away. And let's just say for purposes for what we're trying to do here, you're getting caught speeding 55 mile an hour zone you're doing over 100 miles an hour that's not here's a ticket that's all right buckle up we're going to jail right i, I wasn't doing 100 ho 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 is that where y'all's mind was going i was not doing 100 i was not doing 100 but you're doing 100 that's right you, you're doing 100 and so they say you're going to jail so they lock you up put you in handcuffs they take you down you go into the courtroom to be arraigned that night you know so you're going to go ahead get this thing taken care of and you realize as you're walking in that you know the judge. Not super well, but you know the judge in this town. It's a friend, the father uh, of a friend of yours. And you're like, yes, he is going to let me off. It's late at night, you know, nobody's going to even know. 
he's going to let me off. I'm set and you're excited. And you kind of see him. And of course, being a good judge, he doesn't make a lot of, you know, personal remarks to you. Doesn't like acknowledge that he knows you, but you can kind of tell he knows you, right? And so he stands there and he looks at you and he hears the charges against you 100 miles an hour in a 55 mile an hour zone. And he looks and he raises his gavel. And you're like, all right, here it goes. Man, I dodged a bullet this time. And he brings the gavel down. Guilty. And your heart sinks. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And he says, now for sentencing. Guilty of the crime of reckless speeding. Thousand dollar fine. Or one week in jail. And you're stunned even more. You thought, okay, maybe there's like, you know, maybe a small fine and I get to go. But he says no. But then in one motion, he steps down from behind his big lofty seat. And he comes down. He unzips his robe. He reaches in and pulls out of his wallet 10 crisp $100 bills and hands them to you and says, with this you can pay your fine. He made sure that justice was served, but then he paid the price for your crimes. And that is a good picture. It's not perfect. Don't get me wrong. It's a good picture of what Jesus does for us. If, if you've been with us for a while, if you were with us earlier on in the year, we went through a series talking about God has a name. And we talked about the in-depth character of Yahweh and all the fact that He is just and He is good, but He also is full of mercy. But there has to be a balance. He cannot just turn a blind eye towards my sin and your sin. He has to make sure that justice is served. And so that's what the judge in this story does. And we know that it's a small but hopefully powerful understanding and illustration of what Jesus does for us. And instead of getting down off of His throne of judgment, and it says that Jesus will come back to judge, that Jesus will come down and He steps off, takes off His robes, and He goes to the cross. He doesn't reach out and put out of it, pull out of his wallet a thousand dollars to pay your fine. He reaches his arms out and has them nailed to a cross. Nailed to a cross to pay for your sin and my sin and the sins of the world. Sins that deserve death, every single one of us. He takes the death that you deserve to die and pays the price that you could not pay for you to be free. For me to be free. And that, my friends, is the beautiful explanation of what Jesus does for us. And no, it's not perfect, but it's a powerful understanding is that you and I get to walk away righteous or justified, to use that companion word. And I heard it explained many times and it's, it's not wrong, but I, I was taught a good way to remember justified is this. Just as if I'd never sinned. Good little play on words there to help you remember what that word means. But it's not really complete. It's, it's true. Bear with me. Here's what I'm trying to say. 
God does make it through Jesus just as if we'd never sinned. But when you and I hear that, I don't know about you, but many of us can kind of come away with the idea of, well, everything's good, everything's taken care of. But we have to remember, we have to remember this powerful truth is that we did not just get declared innocent and nobody paid the price. Are you with me on this? Jesus didn't just say, oh, it's, it's okay, it's, it's forgiven, it's wiped away. He did say that. But the price was paid. The price was paid by Jesus. He wasn't just paying a fine, He gave His life. He was prosecuted and punished in our place. Justice was served, but mercy was given. And here's the thing. We are pardoned, but not without a price. We are pardoned, but not without a price. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For our sake, He, God, made Him to be sin, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our place on the cross so he was righteous. He was perfect. We were unrighteous. We were completely screwed up. And he took our place so that we could become the righteousness of God. That, my friends, is not a fair trade. How many times have you screamed or have you heard somebody else scream, especially in the last couple of years, I want fair. When it comes to God, you don't want fair. Because fair is you're going to a cross. Fair is you're suffering for eternity for your sin. But we don't get fair by the grace of God. We don't get fair. And Jesus became sin for us who was sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. And that is an unbelievable, undeserved trade. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. The righteous for the unrighteous. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Can I be honest with you? I struggled this week with this message. I struggled this week with this message. Here's why. It's because last week, um, I planned my sermons out. A lot of times, the better part, I do most of the year in advance, early in January or maybe like the end of the year before. And so I come up with themes, with sermons, ideas of this is where I think I want to go. I do a lot of praying. I go away for about a day and a half and I really spend time praying. And so I don't get down into the nitty gritty until it gets time closer you know, to the actual sermon. And so I try to pray and, and ask God to help me speak His words. Uh, I found out years ago that I would write messages and then ask God to bless them. And then I realized that was wrong. I said, God, give me the message and then help me to be a blessing to the people. You know, help me to share your message. And so I've tried to do that as much as I can rather than writing the message, say, God, help me, give me the message to, to speak. And when I was doing that, I was struggling because I'll be honest, I, last week we were talking about holiness in the scripture and the Holy Spirit led us to talking about baptism. And this week, as I was reading Scripture and, and looking at things, the Holy Spirit and Scripture was leading to talk about baptism. And I didn't want to get up here and everybody think, well, that's all he talks about. And I didn't want to get up here and people think, oh, he's beating this dead horse, this sucker, poor glue factory horse, you know. 
Don't get me wrong, I never want to shy away because it's truth, it's scripture. I never want to shy away, but that's where the text led last week and I didn't want to seem like I was, you know, repeating myself over and over. But I have to say this because we have to be clear. The scripture has a clear teaching on baptism and it's so misunderstood. It's so misunderstood and it's often misinterpreted and misrepresented which makes it necessary to share God's Word on such an important truth. And here, here's the powerful truth. If you're going to be faithful to the Bible, God's Word, baptism is all wrapped up and intertwined with the righteousness of Christ. But I still didn't want to be repetitive. <laughs> like I tell you guys, I, if nothing else, I'm real. I try to be honest and real. It was a struggle. I, I wrestled. I was angry. I was frustrated. But the Spirit and the Word kept leading me this way. And, and you know what's interesting? When I Googled the phrase, and I ain't gonna lie, I Googled things about my sermon. It, you can go on Bible Gateway, you can go on Version, but their search engines just aren't that good. And so I Google things when I'm trying to remember where a specific thing in the Bible is. I'll Google a phrase or a word. And it pulls up, normally, some good examples. And there is a cool website called openbible.com, I guess. I can't remember if it's a .com, but it's Open Bible. And you type in a phrase in Google, and usually it's one of the top thing, results. And it will just give you a list of scriptures that are related to that topic. Well, when I was trying to remember where the phrase righteous for the unrighteous was in scripture... I just put that in in Google, and what came up was Open Bible, and it listed off a list of probably 30 scriptures, I don't know. But the interesting thing was, is it reminded me right off the bat that the phrase righteous for the unrighteous comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, and that passage is, loose, or is tightly connected. The next phrase there is talking about baptism, and, and it says that this baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from your flesh, but the appeal to God for a good conscience. And so the righteous for the unrighteous is connected there with baptism into Christ. And the crazy thing was, is that I didn't want to, and I, had, I hadn't steered the message that way yet towards baptism, but out of the top ten scriptures, four of the top ten were passages revolving around baptism. And it reminded me of a truth that I have to remind you about, is that the righteousness of Christ is completely intertwined with baptism into Christ. If you're going to read the Scripture, you have to be honest with it and look and see what it says. And so the Scripture kept pointing that way, and I prayed and I prayed, and the Holy Spirit kept pointing that way, and I kept arguing. I was like, I don't want to say the same thing again. And I hope I won't, but I hope it's another angle. But here's that powerful truth. Here's that powerful truth. If we want to spend eternity with Jesus, we have to have the righteousness of Christ. And if we desire the righteousness of Christ, it's a fair question to say, how do we get it? And back to the passage, Isaiah 64 verse 6 says this, We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds, our best deeds, are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. And we already hammered this point in, so I'm not going to belabor it, but we are messed up people on our own. 
when it's our works, when it's our good deeds, when it's our trying, we are messed up and we cannot save ourselves. Our garments are dirty when God looks at us. And then if you back up a couple of chapters in Isaiah 61 verse 10, it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And so the obvious question is, if your mind works like mine anyway, and I hope for your sake maybe it doesn't, but, but the obvious question is, is how do we get those robes of righteousness? How do we get those garments of salvation that He will clothe us in? And we go to where the Scripture leads, and it says in Galatians chapter 3, which is a passage that's all connected with the old law, Abraham and all that sort of stuff. It's all connected there. Abraham, it says in Galatians 3.26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. You've clothed yourselves with Christ. You are justified before God when by faith you are clothed with Christ in baptism through your faith in Him. It's not a work. It's not anything you do. That's the most faith-filled thing you can do is allow somebody to lower you underwater and trust that God is going to call you righteous at that point because of the blood of His Son. But it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing because you know that you are buried. You know that you died. You're buried and you're resurrected to walk in a new life. And God decides to do something spiritually at that point. And so here's the thing. If we want to be justified before God, if we want to be righteous, we have to be in Christ. And the Scripture teaches us, not just these passages, but many passages that when we are in Christ, we're, when we're baptized into Christ by faith. I try to give practical steps or, or moves for people to take every week. And I'll be honest, I don't have a lot of different practical steps this week, except honestly the most important one that you need to make sure that you have been faithful to God in. Is have you been clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Have you been clothed in the garments of salvation? Not your own attempt at righteousness, not in your own attempts to get it right and say the right things and do the right things, but what God has said makes you righteous is when you come in contact with the blood of Jesus and His death, burial, and resurrection, He will make you righteous. I've got a video that I want to show in just a moment. And forgive me, it's, it's sort of grainy, and you may have seen this, it went viral many years ago, and many people have done their own versions of it, but it's simply a skit acted out on video that I believe gives us one of the most beautiful pictures of what Jesus went through to give us the opportunity to be righteous. So take a moment and watch this. I'm the dummy who put that and then I had to stand up here before you and not be sobbing like a little baby. <laughs> a great price was paid for you to be righteous. A great price was paid for me to be righteous. 
Don't miss out on the opportunity to be righteous before God. The challenge today is simple. Are you covered in the robes of righteousness that Christ gives us? The Scripture says when we're baptized into Christ because of our faith and our repentance and our confessing Him as Lord and King that we are set free, that we are made whole, that we are washed, we are forgiven of our sin, we are receiving the Holy Spirit, we are buried with Christ and raised to new life. We have the righteousness of Christ when we have our faith placed in Jesus at baptism. So today, if that's your decision, if that's the move that you need to make, we'd love to talk with you about that. Or if you've already done that, I want you to be praying for people who you know and care about who need to make that decision as well. That's simple today. A great price was paid for you and I to be righteous. Let's not miss out. Let's stand. Let's see. Thank you for listening to Movement Christian Church's sermon podcast. Want to learn more about us? You can do that by visiting our website at movementchristianchurch.com or on our app available on iOS and Android devices under Movement NC.